I'm entitling the message, Make Believers and False Deceivers. The chapter is really warnings to the Pharisees. In chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and they do not. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. For you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever humbles himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In verse 12 it says, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He basically says, the way up is the way down. In chapter 23, Jesus is going to direct his anger toward the wicked Pharisees whom he condemns publicly in verses 1 through 12 and who he will condemn publicly personally, in verses 13 through 36. Jesus describes their wanton wickedness in verses 1 through 7. And then he's going to issue some specific warnings in verses 8 through 12. The Pharisees don't practice what they preach in verses 1 through 3. They place heavy burdens on people in verse 4. They're all show and no go in verses 5 through 7, or as our friends from Texas say, they're all hat and no cattle. They demand positions of prominence in verse 6. No wonder Jesus warns whoever exalts himself is going to experience an unwelcome humbling. And whoever humbles himself will receive unexpected elevation and exaltation in verses 8 through 12. Jesus hates false religion. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that Jesus is capable of engaging in hate speech? He hates hypocrisy wickedness. This is Jesus' last public message to a mixed audience. For those of you who have been following along, it's still Tuesday. In the final week of his life, you would think that the last message would be filled with encouragement, with grace, with love, with an invitation 
discouraging hypocrisy and rebuking self-righteousness or self-righteous behavior, it still remains hard to hear, even in the present generation. But Jesus speaks and we must listen. Jesus hates legalism. Jesus hates false religion that parades itself under the banner of truth. Jesus hates legalistic religion. In his last public message, Jesus is going to confront the Pharisees' false views of religious greatness. He is going to confront their false views of their concepts of ministry. Later, Jesus is going to issue a series of scathing rebukes that would, as my granny used to say, scald the hair off a dog. But Jesus isn't out of control. Jesus is never unjust. Jesus is always fair. Jesus is always honest. Jesus confronts the make-believer and the religious deceiver in opportunity to recognize what's gone wrong so that we can repent, so that we can turn from our sin. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is turning up the heat and the speech glows red. Jesus is not capable of bitterness. He's not capable of uncontrolled anger. He's not capable of harsh judgment or unfairness. Sadly, I'm capable of all of those things and more. I'm a sinner. I'm capable of judging a person harshly, unfairly. But Jesus is incapable of judging anyone harshly or unfairly. And so right from the start, we discover something that make believers appeal to a false authority. In in verse 1, it says, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. This is how we know it's a mixed multitude. It's going to contain the Herodians. It's going to contain the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everyone who's already been involved in the questioning process and to his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In brief, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Remember, the scribes were trained in writing skills. It was their job to write things down, to record events and decisions. And by that we would mean judicial decisions. During the Babylonian captivity, it would appear that they honed and perfected the art and science, if you will, of copying God's word, of preserving God's word, and teaching God's word. In the Old Testament, Ezra was such a scribe. The Pharisees were also born during the Babylonian captivity. They were zealous to separate from pagan idolatry. Even to this very day, when people are asked, to Jewish people, how do you survive with no sacrifice and no temple? They'll appeal to this Babylonian period and they'll say, God understands that we don't have a temple and we don't have a sacrifice. And what I would point out to them is, 
that there's only one satisfying sacrifice that God is open to. These men wanted to separate themselves from the pagan philosophy and the pagan idolatry. So in the first century, the scribes and the Pharisees constituted the largest and most influential religious group during the time of Jesus. We're all scribes and Pharisees, fun-hating fools, religious hypocrites and fanatics. The right answer is no. In Acts chapter 23, verse 6, when Paul appeared before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he said, it, it, it states in the book of Acts, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. He said, I am a Pharisee. And the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I'm called into question. Apparently, there were sincere Pharisees. The Pharisees were committed to holiness and keeping the law. They were separate from the unclean and unbelieving world of the pagans and the nominal Jews. Some of the more outstanding Pharisees mentioned in the Bible include Joseph of Arimathea. You read about him in John 19.38. And of course, Nicodemus in John 3. Even Gamaliel was seen as an honored and wise man who gave prudent advice when it came to decision making in Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Young Saul studied the Torah and the rest of the scripture. Shaul or Saul prayed, tithed, observed the law, obeyed the God of Israel, gave tithes and ministry to the poor. But he was unsaved. He didn't have a right relationship with God. Some of the Pharisees were well-meaning, looking to honor and obey the Lord. But their love for the law turned into fear of breaking the law. And because their fear of breaking the law outweighed their love for the Lord, they began to establish other laws. Rather than run the risk of breaking the law, they made up new laws. They would take the law of God and then they would put a fence around that law so that they wouldn't even come close to breaking the law. So the Pharisees created a complex system of behaviors that they, would, that they believed would keep them from breaking the law. And so to them, the law was the rule, the standard, the authority. You'll remember the Lord forbade work on the Sabbath. Take one day and rest, the Bible says. Cease from labor. Honor the Lord. Worship him. Pray. Fellowship. But some Jews began to ask the question, well, what exactly is work? If you carry a burden, is it work? Yes. What if I pick up a grain of wheat? So they established a law that you couldn't carry anything heavier than a fig. That means that if you had false teeth, you had to spit it out in the morning. You were forbidden from looking in the mirror, ladies. Because you might see a gray hair and you might be tempted to pluck that baby out. And so that was breaking the law. 
And so, again, to avoid breaking the law, they made up new laws. If you carry a burden, it was severely limited. So why chance it? Don't pick up anything. What if someone is sick? You can't practice medicine on the Sabbath. Why chance it? Who wants to offend God? And so the Pharisees believed it was their job to protect the law and to propagate the law. They wanted to protect the, the scriptures. And so they were willing to make up new rules, man-made rules, man-made traditions to ensure the protection and the propagation of the law. What may have started out as a sincere desire to keep the law degenerated into a paranoid fear of offending the Lord by breaking the law. And so the Pharisees feared God, not in the healthy sense, not in, not in the reverential sense. They were afraid that they would offend God and that God would hate them and that God would punish them and that God would destroy them. The Pharisees were so afraid of God and they were so determined not to offend God by breaking the rules, they established this series of fences, these series of barriers around the scripture to make sure that they didn't break the rules. And so you begin to understand something. Christians can do exactly the same thing, can't they? They can build barriers. Christians aren't immune from the dangers of making up rules and regulations that aren't contained in the Bible, that are nowhere found in the New Testament. There are Christians who are afraid of God. They're way more afraid of God than they love God. And they're way more afraid of breaking the rules. And so some Christians have an unhealthy dread of condemnation. And even when you quote the scriptures to them, like Romans 8, 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation, the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that have committed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That no matter how many times you quote the scripture, no matter how many times you explain the scripture, they don't believe it could possibly be true for them. And so they fear God. Not in a healthy sense. They fear grace. And they build fences to make sure that they don't offend God. They think that good fences make good neighbors. And since they're building the fence, it's not good enough that they have new rules for themselves, they insist that you also keep their rules. And this is the very definition of legalism. Legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. You can't read this book. You can't see this movie. You can't eat this food. You can't drink this beverage. Everybody knows dancing leads to sexual immorality. Certain movies corrupt and therefore you shouldn't see them. If you drink a glass of wine with dinner, you are probably running the risk of full-blown alcohol abuse. We build fences to keep ourselves safe the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. This is the seat of authority, the seat of leadership. And so they're 
tasked with understanding and, and applying the law. There's no record, by the way, in the scripture that the mantle of authority rested with the scribes and the Pharisees. The only real authority they possessed was the, the authority of the scriptures themselves. And by the way, this is the only real authority that exists, period. The only true authority is the one that is given to us by God's word. It is the powerful guide that gives us the way in order to go forward. In verse 3 it says, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Moses' seed is a reference to the position of the teacher of the law. And so in a very real sense, Jesus is basically saying, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Jesus is basically telling the people when the scribes and the Pharisees ask you to do something that's instructed to you in the Bible, do it. So some people might misread this. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe. Well, if they tell you to stand on your head and spit nickels, should you do it? No. If they tell you to take all your clothes off and run around the block naked, does that mean you do it? No. The text can't mean whatever in the broadest sense. It can't mean if they ask you to do something illegal, something immoral, something hypocritical, something sinful. That's not what's happening in the text. There's no record in the scripture, like I said, that the mantle of authority rested with the scribes and the Pharisees. The real authority is the word of God. We don't add to it. We don't subtract to it. Clearly, in the context, it must mean when they ask you to read, listen, understand, and obey the Bible, do it. False teachers have several things in common. They either add to the scripture or they subtract from the scripture. They add to the revelation of God or they subtract from the revelation of God. So false spiritual leaders lack any real authority. The people were to obey the commands of the Lord that, are, that were taught in the scripture. But the people were under no obligation to obey man-made rules and man-made traditions that caused them to disobey God's word. And I'm being very specific here. I'm not saying man-made rules and man-made traditions that you can't have laws for safety and, and those kinds of things. I'm not suggesting that. That's not what's being said here. It's the man-made rules and regulations and traditions that force people to disobey God. False spiritual leaders lack biblical authority, and so they'll always find a way to embrace extra biblical authority. By the way, only Jesus is worthy to have disciples. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Only Jesus is all in all, it says in Colossians 3.11. People forget that many false teachers began life in orthodox Christianity. Sun Young Moon, who became the, the founder of a Korean cult, began life as a Presbyterian with some Pentecostal influences. The Korean millionaire began to believe that he was mankind's 
best hope and brightest person. Joseph Smith claimed that John the Baptist gave him the ironic priesthood. Judge Rutherford of Jehovah's Witness fame claimed that he was God's chosen vessel. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, placed himself as a higher authority than Jesus or the Bible. Even in the LDS or the Mormon tradition, they'll tell you that Joseph Smith has a more exalted position about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. False teachers and false teaching do nothing to keep people out of hell. They just make people happy about going there or at least feel better about going there. The world has always had false religious leaders who pretend to represent God, but really represent themselves. Jesus called them false Christs, false prophets in Matthew 24, 24. Paul called them preachers of a perverted gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says at the end of verse 3, but do not according to their works. For they say and do not. Again, Jesus is accusing them of being all show and no go. He's accusing them of saying one thing and doing another. I'm currently reading a, a, an overview of the history of civilization. And one of the uh, great troubling things that happen in the missionary movement both in China and India and Africa is many of the native peoples would see missionaries and they would preach the gospel. They would preach a gospel of love and forgiveness and hope and grace, but they didn't exercise it in their, their own life and it caused great confusion, just like it causes confusion to this very day. You probably have family and friends who have said to you, I don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites. And you say, it could use one more. <laughs> we understand that human beings are inconsistent. But we also understand that God's word and God's grace and God's gospel is true. Even when people misrepresent it. I was on a radio program this last weekend with, uh, of all people, Craig Silverman. And he asked me, um, would you like to convert me? And I said, of course I would. Remember I asked you earlier, do you believe that there's going to be a Messiah? And he said, yes. And I said, who am I to keep you from knowing and loving and believing the Messiah? Of course I want, can you imagine any, asking any observant Jew, by the way, when the Messiah shows up, don't believe him, don't accept him, make sure you reject him. And I asked him, do you think that the Messiah will eventually show up? He said, yes. I said, what are you willing to accept as evidence that that person becomes, the, that he is in fact the Messiah? And he said, he will bring global peace. He will bring world peace. But imagine you're willing to ignore all that the scripture says about Jesus and hold on to a false hope about a false Messiah. Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of saying one thing and doing another. He accuses them of having a false concept of righteousness. 
Warren Wiersbe writes, to the Pharisee, righteousness meant outward conformity to the law of God. They ignored the inward condition of the heart, unquote. What is the next best thing in their polluted and false philosophy? Their polluted and their false philosophy is the next best thing to real righteousness is fake righteousness, external righteousness, comb over righteousness, all show, no go. Is this true? Of course it's not true. But this is the philosophy that was adopted by the Pharisees. Does God require honesty and humility from the heart? The answer is yes. Are we always honest and humble? The answer is no. And so sometimes we create the illusion that we're being honest. We create false humility. Does God require forgiveness towards others, generosity towards others, graciousness towards others, mercy towards others, loving kindness towards others? Yes, but those things are difficult. Unless God changes you from the heart, from the inside out. And so the Pharisees, because they weren't changed from the inside out, focused on saying the right thing, looking the right way. They made sure that they stayed within the letter of the law. They followed the rules. They observed the rituals. But they didn't obey the law from their heart from the inner recesses of their soul. The Bible says that God longs for and desires truth in the inward part. In Psalm 51, 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me know wisdom, unquote. When we preach one thing, and we practice another. That's called hypocrisy. False leaders lack integrity. They teach others to do what's right. But they refuse to do what's right themselves. And so it was never, ever, ever a good idea to tell your children, do what I say and not what I do. They understand even from a small age that that's hypocrisy. And so false deceivers make heavy burdens. Look what it says in verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Do you understand what's happening in the text? Jesus is revealing the false teacher's philosophy of ministry. What is their false philosophy of ministry? It is... I want you to be perfect. And I'm going to help you be perfect. But I don't care about myself. So, how do, so what does this have to do with anything? How do we function in church? How do we function in community? How do we function in reality? How will we minister to people? I'm going to say this in the broadest terms possible. We will relieve people's burdens... Or we will make their burden heavier. We will, in the very real way that we talk with each other and treat one another and minister to one another, we are either going to increase a burden of guilt or we're going to lighten the burden of guilt. How do you help people? How do you serve God? The Pharisees say, 
Give them rules and regulations. Give them a list of things that they can do and not do. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with those who do. Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of being harder on others than they are on themselves. False religious leaders invariably will make other people feel bad, make other people feel guilty. But when you make other people feel get bad and make other people feel guilty, guess what? Your compassion quotient, your sympathy quotient, your grace quotient begins to disappear in your own life. Some people love to tack their don't do list right between your eyes. They want you to be perfect, but they won't lift one finger to help you be perfect. Erwin Lutzer, the former pastor of Moody Church, he just resigned, by the way, in May, and what a wonderful man. 20 books, what a, what a great servant of the Lord. He wrote, quote, believers who are motivated by legalism are always anxious to know what's expected of them. They want to do only what is necessary to make themselves look respectable. They crave specific rules so they can know precisely how to behave. They plod along, hoping that someday their efforts will pay off. According to the New Testament, such people are legalists. They're using the law to establish their righteousness, unquote. And so some people use the rules and the regulations to make themselves look good at the expense of others. But Jesus came to lighten our burden, not make it heavier. Jesus came to forgive, not pile on more sin. Jesus came to remove guilt, not suffocate us in shame and guilt. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 famously says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, does this mean that Christians can do whatever they want? No. Does it mean that you can do whatever you want without a, a fearing or offending anyone or offending God, that's not what's being said here. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Does Jesus demand love? He does. But here's the big question. He demands love. Did he give you love? That's exactly right. He demands what he himself will give. Does Jesus ask for patience? Does he ask for humility? Does he ask for honesty? Does he ask for sacrifice? Does he ask for forgiveness? The big question becomes, does Jesus exercise love and patience and humility and honesty and sacrifice and forgiveness? Does he ask you to obey and serve? Yeah. Did he obey and serve? 
Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, the Pharisees commanded, but they didn't participate. They were hypocritical religious dictators and spiritual leaders, unquote. And so we continue that make believers focus on position from verses 5 through 12. Look what it says. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best place at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rebbe, Rebbe. But you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do, do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers. For one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees not only had it wrong about the philosophy of ministry, but they had it wrong about the sense of greatness. What makes a person great in the kingdom of heaven? And all make-believers and all false deceivers will eventually default to power and position. Success is recognition by men or recognition by the church, or recognition by the church hierarchy, praise from men, recognition from the powers that be, and then they rejoice. The Pharisees were interested in approval from men, but not approval from God. They used their religion to attract attention to themselves and not necessarily to glorify the Lord. If this meant Wearing religious ornaments like some sort of seasonal Christmas tree, so be it. They wore religious symbols to prove their piety. When I was a police chaplain many years ago in the city of Chino in Southern California, they came out and they, they gave us shirts with little white collars. And I said, you know, I don't need a shirt with a little white collar. And they go, you don't understand where you are. This is gang country and it's mostly Hispanic. They think it's bad luck to kill a priest. Oh, okay. You see, there's things that will motivate you and things that don't motivate you. Phylacteries, by the way, in verse 5, and I, you can put the phylactery thing up, were small leather cases which contained four Bible verses. You can see the leather case on, on the top of this observant Jew's head. There were four Bible verses. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16. Then Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And then Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21. The leather case was made from the hide of a clean animal. The black leather strap was fastened and then wound seven times around the arm and three times around the hand. The box was difficult to see because it faced toward the body so that it could be close to the heart. These boxes were called tefillim. The box was placed high on the forehead, just above the hairline. Like I said, it had four compartments. 
Each section contained a piece of parchment which would have contained those four scriptures. Each was tied with the well-washed hair of a calf's tail. They were afraid to put wool because fungus could grow on wool and that fungus would, would leave them polluted. So phylacteries began as an honest attempt to interpret two verses in Exodus. Exodus chapter 13, verse 9, and then again in verse 16, where it says, quote, It shall be a sign unto thee upon thy hands, and for a memorial between their eyes. So some people took this as a figure of speech. Others took it literally. And so they decided to wear the Bible verses on their arm or on their forehead. And I want to point something out to you. Jesus doesn't condemn them for wearing them, but for making it so obvious. I would also point out there's no evidence in the New Testament that Jesus wore this himself, although some people would argue with me. Some people might think, well, if people wear religious objects on their person and it helps with their faith, what does it really matter? Isn't Jesus going a little overboard? But for many, the Tephilim had become something other than a sincere desire to obey the Lord, but they saw it sort of as a, as a lucky charm. It reminds me of someone in, in Vietnam who came upon another person, and the person was wearing a cross and a crescent and a star of David and a Hindu spinning wheel. And he goes, you've got all these symbols. He goes, I know, I could die. I can't afford to offend anybody at this point. But that's kind of the mentality. Some people wear a cross like a good luck charm. They don't know God or love God or have any intention of reading the Bible or obeying the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Greek word here that is used to describe the tephilim is amulet or charm. Quote, they enlarge the border of their garments, verse 5. What does that mean? The practice is rooted in a real biblical command from Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, where we read, Tell the people of Israel to make tassels for the hems of their clothes and to attach the tassels to their clothes with a blue cord. The purpose of this regulation is to remind you that wherever or whenever you notice the tassels of the commandment of the Lord and you are to obey his laws instead of following your own desire and going your own way as you used to do in serving other gods, unquote. These were on the four corners of the outer garment and were later moved to the inner garment and are still worn to this day by devout Jews as prayer shawls. Sometimes you'll see observant Jews or devout Jews and they're, they're, you see little strings hanging from their garment and they're with little knots on them. They're called tzitzit and it comes from this verse. Again, Jesus' problem is that they would make the blue border so big and the tassels so large that you could see them coming from a mile away. These weren't a reminder. 
These were a full-blown billboard reporting that the most holy of holy rollers is making their way into your presence. It's sort of like you might have had a Christian friend who has the biggest Bible that you can imagine, and he tucks it under his, his, his I mean, we're talking where you need a wheelbarrow in order to carry this Bible. Or maybe they wear a cross so big they could actually die on it. But the point that Jesus is criticizing is putting on appearances. He's not condemning the wearing of crosses, and he's certainly not condemning having a Bible. But he is condemning putting on a show in order to leave people with an impression that simply isn't true. For people who go to church and they don't really want to hear the Bible and they don't want to literally learn the lesson, they're interested in selling a product or expanding their downline. People go to church, they tuck the Bible under their arm, but they have no intention of reading it. So the religious leaders are quite sure that Position was a mark of greatness in verses 6 and 7. They looked for the most prominent pews in the synagogue. When they also wanted titles of honors uh, and marks of greatness, rabbi meant my great one or my great teacher. So they coveted the title. Some people will earn a doctorate degree just so they can have the prestige of being called doctor. The FBI made me put reverend on my card. And I said, have you ever looked up that word in the dictionary? Look it up and see if it applies to me. Jesus forbids the disciples from calling each other rabbi because they're brothers. Jesus is their teacher. There's a spiritual equality among the brethren under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get more spiritual than being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The point is that Jesus lives inside of you. If you're saved or, and forgiven, how does the title of pastor or the title of teacher or the title of deacon or the title of rabbi give you any more credibility? Now, that doesn't mean that it's disrespectful to call a person teacher or, or pastor. But Jesus is not forbidding the use of titles. What he's forbidding is the elevation of people so that they have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. Jesus forbade them from calling each other father in reference to spiritual things. He can't be saying don't call your dad, dad, or, or don't call your father, father. Imagine everyone listening to this program goes, hey, I can no longer call you father, so how are you doing, Bob? <laughs> no, the Bible says honor your mother and your father, so it's not forbidding calling your mother, mother, and your father, father. What, it, what it's forbidding is elevating people to a position of prominence that is undeserved, 
As a matter of fact, Paul refers to himself as a spiritual father in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, For though you might have had 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So is it wrong to call Paul a church father? Of course not. But here's what I want to point out to you. Paul never insists that you call him rabbi or that you call him father. Jesus also forbade them from calling each other master in verse 10. The word master here means guide, instructor, leader. The word is different from the word in verse 8. There, the word means one who goes before and guides, almost like a scout. One Bible writer suggests a modern equivalent word would be authority. God has placed spiritual authorities in our lives, but they never replace God as the ultimate authority. They never replace the word of God as the ultimate authority. Your pastor is not the ultimate authority. The church leaders are not the ultimate authority. Your husband or your wife are not the ultimate authority. The person on TV is not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority who reveals his will and way according to the word of God. And so... I think of Guru Maharaji when I was a kid growing up in the 70s. He required his disciples to call him perfect master and lord of the universe. Can you imagine you're involved in a group and they say, what should I call you? Lord of the universe. We laugh because of the absurdity of such a thing. So what's the bottom line? False teachers are proud. They're arrogant. They seek spiritual titles that elevate them above the masses. They're not humble. They lack humility. Only their pride was more swollen than their phylacteries and their borders. Perhaps some cult leaders start out honestly. They start out in humility. And then all of a sudden they begin to believe the flatteries of the adoring crowds. True spiritual leaders will point you back to the Bible, to Jesus. True leaders remind you that the most important and intimate relationship doesn't belong with them, but with him. And so, true greatness comes when in humility we love the Lord. So we discover True greatness consists of loving and serving others in verses 11 through 12. A truly great spiritual leader serves and doesn't force others to serve him or, or her. You cannot conjure or manufacture greatness by exalting yourself or elevating yourself. True greatness comes when in humility you simply say, you know what I want to do? I just want to love the Lord. I want to obey him. I want to serve him. If we exalt ourselves, the Bible says, God's going to find a way to humble us. If we humble ourselves, God's going to find a way to exalt us. Jesus is in effect saying true leaders avoid elevated titles and accept lowly tasks. 
And by the way, is that exactly what Jesus himself did? Yeah. He said, you know what? You call me teacher and master, and that's who I am. It, it really is true. He goes, but I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Jesus is going to avoid the titles and honor that people want to heap upon him. He will choose to humble himself. He will choose to take on the form of a servant. He will eat with sinners. He will wash feet. He will touch lepers. And so, in conclusion, I just want to point out a couple of quick things. Number one, false leaders lack authority. So how do you spot a deceiver? Each and every one of you, God has given you a baloney meter. Your baloney meter should go off every single time when a leader tries to tell you that the basis of his authority, the basis of her authority is somehow different from what the Bible says. A person has every right to say to you, the Bible says this. But if a person says, I say this, then they need to be able to quote chapter and verse. Every time someone exercises false authority, your baloney meter should go off. Authority isn't given by men. It isn't given by the church. It isn't even given by a denomination. It's given by God. It's given by God's authority. Any person who confuses, distorts, diminishes, denies the authority of the Bible, make a run from them. Number two, false leaders lack integrity. They do one thing and say another. They want to look spiritual, but they refuse to be spiritual. Number three, false leaders lack a cultivated and keen sense of compassion, sensitivity, sympathy. Often they're big on rules and they're small on grace. They love rules. They love regulations. They love the to-do list. But they don't keep the list themselves. Number four, false teachers lack humility and love titles. They hate to do work that is beneath them. Remember Jesus said, avoid titles. Instead, seek out opportunities to serve. You know, I know that some of you have actually been involved with a cult. You've had a bad experience. You've had a situation in your life where you were taken advantage of. And you find it difficult to trust anyone. And I understand. But there's one thing that will help you. And that thing is, remember, the reason why cults are so successful is because the average Christian lacks the understanding of the Bible, the character of God, and the gospel of grace. If you want to guard yourself against false teachers and false teaching, know the Bible. Know the character of God. Know that you're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Separate yourself from spiritual 
pollution. Don't fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Discourage cultic practices. Encourage people in faith. Defend the truth. Defend the truth against satanic opposition. And you'll be just fine. We're going to have communion now in just a moment. Um, I'm going to have Carolyn come up. We're going to um, pray. And I'm going to just have you guys take communion on your own. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, these words are hard and difficult to understand for many of us. But Lord, we know that no matter what, Jesus is fair, Jesus is kind, Jesus is compassionate. Lord, we understand that Jesus in his anger remains just. Jesus, in his disappointment, still allows for opportunity for us to turn from our sin and turn to our Savior. And Lord, we remember, we remember our Savior. Lord, we have every right to gauge every so-called leader against our Savior, against his kindness, his selflessness, his love, his generosity, his graciousness. And Lord, even as we prepare for communion right at this very moment, Lord, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. That Jesus didn't come to serve, to to be served, but rather to serve everyone. And so, Lord, we remember on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said take this this is my body which will be broken for you the bible says that again he gave thanks and praise and he lifted a cup and he he said this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins and that when we drink that bread, that when we drink from that cup and we eat that bread, that we're showing the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that Jesus poured out his life to give us hope, to ensure grace. Heavenly Father, we understand that the Bible teaches that you are completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus to give us life, to give us hope, to impart to us salvation and forgiveness and even reward. That Paul was right when he wrote that Jesus became sin so that we would to take our sin and so that we could acquire his righteousness. Lord, it's so difficult for so many people to believe that you're completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. And yet, Lord, we pray that even as we once again partake of these elements, that we would be reminded that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin in the past in the present 
and in the future. And so again, Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for love. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We commit this to you and we we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake.